0: Welcome back to Footnotes, a history podcast focusing on forgotten moments, people on the wrong side, and those who lost. My name is Mark, and I am joined here remotely with my best friend Kevin, because we are here at the precipice at the end of the world. This episode's probably not going to come out for like, gosh, like six months, seven months or something like that. Uh, I can't remember how far we are ahead in terms of our production schedule right now. But for those of you Listening sometime down in the future, they found this on a broken cassette under a pile of rubble that used to be a city. It is currently March 28th, 2020. Uh, we here in California, uh, in Sacramento more specifically, are about a week and a half, basically two weeks now into the shelter in place, originally recommendation, but now ordinance uh, during the COVID-19 debacle, fiasco, horseman, whatever it is. And so this is our first remote recording session, which is quite the experience. So hopefully uh, you don't notice it in terms of the actual uh, flow of the episode. But if it feels a little weird, it's because marauders are at our doors.
1: As you say that, there's police sirens in the background at my house.
0: (laughs) Oh, that couldn't have been more fitting.
1: So today's episode is in a completely different era than many of our past episodes. If you haven't noticed, we tend to stick around in the 19th century or just prior to World War I, and then a brief foray, maybe a nine-hour brief foray into the medieval era. But today we're going to be in the 1720s, and we're going to be in a pretty awful location, We're going to be in London in the 1720s. This is not a place that anyone really wants to go. You know, there's plenty of times in history where people talk about a golden age or, you know, it was great to live in this city at this time. You know, Rome in the first and second century or uh, Vienna, Austria in the 19th century. These are places you want to go. No one ever talks about early 1700s London or England in general as this great place. In fact, it was... Desperately shipping all its people out to the colonies, to the Caribbean. Everybody was trying to leave England at this time. And our story takes place in this just terrible, terrible wasteland, which seems really fitting based on the current circumstances of where we live right now.
0: Yeah, it feels like England during this time, from what I know about history, would not have fared well against a COVID-19.
1: Actually, they probably would have fared far better because they're just used to it. When there's seventeen endemic diseases all at once,
0: I, I guess that's fair. I guess, I guess what I meant was uh, COVID would have done well in that environment. I didn't really factor in the fact that, like, at a certain point, the English in this era are just kind of like, oh no, 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 you just you you get you get a hyper uh, a hyper contagious infectious disease and you die at 22, and that's life—the ripe old age of your early twenties. <laughs>
1: People still live decently long time, but as we go through this story, you'll see some of the circumstances that help to really shorten people's lives. And not only are we in 1720s England, we're in the London Underground. We're not in the subway system, we're in the criminal gangs of the Underground. Because today's story is about Honest Jack Shepherd, who was a That's famous a cool criminal. It's a cool name. He was a famous criminal that has come down in history as the very beginning of criminal um, stories like through the newspapers, those like uh, popular crime. Um, that genre develops because of his career and because of the writing of a man named Daniel Defoe who wrote Robinson Crusoe, but was also probably the first true reporter and newspaper men, um, ever. And so, just keep that in mind. This is that the first real story of like a true crime novel.
0: Man, he's got to be bummed that he wasn't around for podcasts. <laughs> Ke- Kevin doesn't listen to a lot of podcasts, but so I'm gonna fill you in really quick. True pr- true crime podcasts real popular right now. It's like eighty percent of podcasts.
1: Really, I guess that makes sense. I have heard of some of them.
0: Oh yeah, like it's it's like the the predominant genre. I mean. Once again, it's the predominant genre pre fall of society.
1: We we shall see, just how much it continues. But hey, we,
0: uh, <laughs> we we've just died.
1: We've dove right into it too. So
0: it, it's so funny. I, I keep making like, uh, like COVID nineteen like society jokes right now. But this episode doesn't come out for like seven or eight months, and so who knows if those jokes are in bad taste by then? I'm really hoping that everyone will be able to laugh about it.
1: We'll see. We will see. Okay, so Jack Shepard. Yeah, back on track. Back on track. That's my job. I haven't been able to do my actual job, which is coordinate eighth graders. So <laughs> I need a little Don't bit worry. of this.
0: You're, you're trying to teach me over a webcam. This is the adult equivalent of trying to coordinate eighth graders.
1: Oh, God. Oh, Yeah. Okay, so Jack Shepard was born in the Spittlefield slums of London, and this is a time when you don't want to live in a slum. Um, you can get all sorts of great descriptions of, Mark's giving me the look like, when do you ever want to live in a slum? Right. But no, trust me, there are degrees of slummage, and this is the worst. This is probably the worst possible slums on the face of the earth because in, in a lot of respects, and of course that's hyperbole, but in a lot of respects... These are the first true urban slums. These are slums before people knew what slums were. And, you know, a slum develops very organically. People just start to live in a place because that's where work is. Well, London at this time was a city of about 600,000 people with a death rate far higher than its birth rate. So if it were left to its own devices, the city would basically shrink down to a much smaller population because... The infant mortality rate was crazy high.
0: London is basically just digesting the English population.
1: Yeah, but since the people in the countryside were dealing with all sorts of different things, such as enclosure where their farms were being bought up and closed and they were being kicked off of them, um, a big war, the War of the Spanish Succession had just ended, so people were flooding back into England without anywhere to live. The economy was set up in London. I mean, that's the capital of the country. People were just flooding into this city and they would just build a shack. And then someone else would build a shack attached to it and someone else would build a shack on top of that. And eventually you get these Dr. Seussian looking buildings where way too many people live in you know, just grime and filth. There's no sewage, there's no cleanliness, there's no real food, there's not really any law. Because as we'll learn, law didn't really exist much at this time. So in this situation, though, Jack Shepard is born to a honest, hardworking man, and he's part of a coherent and apparently very kind family. Uh, And it's a family that had to deal with just as much um, death as a lot of these families did. Jack was named after, named John, named after an older sibling who had died. Um, When he was very young, his father just simply collapses and dies at his workbench, And he had a younger sister who, at a young age, died very young, which left Jack, his mother, and his older brother, Thomas, to simply fend for themselves in the middle of this slum in London. But he lived a bit of a charmed childhood. And to say that this was a charmed childhood is going to be very depressing in just a second because his mother couldn't afford to take care of him. And so she sent him to a workhouse, now, a workhouse is something that would make you think of Oliver Twist. And in Oliver Twist, I believe the, the, that character is in a workhouse. But that Oliver Twist workhouse is famous for the please sir may I have some more and all of that kind of thing.
0: It's literally the only thing I know about it. I haven't actually seen Oliver Twist or read Oliver Twist. It's a book. What? what? Is it a book? Yes. They made a movie,
1: right? Of course they did. It's a Charles Dickens book.
0: There you go. See, the point is, all I know is the police, or may I have some more?
1: The whole point of Dickens' book is he's trying to reveal the terrible life of the Victorian working poor. Well, that's 150 years into the future from where we are now. And these workhouses existed. It's a little
0: romanticized.
1: It, it's a little improved. I mean, they started to, in the late 18th century, improve these workhouses. But the way these workhouses worked... Is these children would be sent there because their parents couldn't afford them, and instead of th- the society was established enough that you can't just like throw your kids out on the street like that. There, that was not an option. They were trying to take care of people, but they did it in such an unkind way. So basically, these were these like uh, military style barrackses where the kids would wake up, be given food, and then sent to work for five hours. And these are like he, he gets sent there when he's I think six years old, and so. The four or five, six is always really young. And all the kids that live there, there's oftentimes, you know, three or four kids to a bed, all being covered with one flea-ridden blanket. They're all incredibly scrawny and they're huddled together. They wake up, they get given food. Um, they work for five hours and they're doing those really menial tasks that little small hands can do. They're doing sewing and stitching and they're making shoes, um, but they're doing the small things. And that's how the workhouse gets its money is the local You know, businesses around it pay the workhouse for these small tasks, things we have long had machines do. This is before machines even took over industrialization. Instead, you have Little Orphan Machines doing the job for you. Um,
0: Little Orphan Machines, new punk band name. I was about to
1: say, that's a good punk band name.
0: It really is. Little Orphan Machines is maybe my favorite punk band name I've ever heard.
1: They would work for five hours. They would go to lunch. They would get a little bit of time to play and a little bit of time to Uh, learn and be taught. And usually they'd be taught how to read and write in these workhouses. Then they'd go back to work for another five hours and repeat that every single day. Um, These workhouses were considered, quote, as a place where education was dispensed purely as a necessary and irksome preliminary to apprenticeship. And that's a quote that comes from the main book that I use for this. It's called The Road to Tyburn* by Christopher Hibbert. It'll be in the show notes, obviously. And it tells Jack Shepard's story. And there's another book I use, which I'll bring up in a little bit. But that quote brings up the fact that the education of these kids was purely there because they were being forced to. These workhouses were oftentimes being run by what's called a harridan, which is a person who is in charge of all the kids in this military-like barracks, and he was usually drunk the entire time. Drunk on gin, and I'll get back to that. The benefit that Jack Shepherd has in the charmed aspect of his life was that he had someone looking out for him. He had his mother. His mother had, even though she couldn't afford him, she had to basically ship him off to this workhouse. She had placed him, um, she had placed herself as a servant in a, uh, like a wool merchant, a grocer, a, a, basically a, a guy who owned a shop and various businesses and was decently wealthy named Mr. Kneebone. And she was his servant, just nice, normal servant, part of his family. Um, at that time, paternalism was a big deal. So this guy was a successful man in London. He had a nice house. He actually had a country house too. And he took care of Jack's mother. Well, Jack's mother was able to prevent him from going into all the bad apprenticeships. And what would happen for these kids is somewhere between the age of four until about 13, they would get plucked away from the workhouse and sent to work as an apprentice in some various industry. Well, the good industries, industries that can make good work, like let's say a carpenter or a blacksmith or a goldsmith, the fee to become that profession was very expensive. So people who had their own livelihoods would get their own children or their, you know, their nephews and stuff like that and get them into those professions. Well, the parishes that ran these workhouses didn't have enough money for that. So the kids at these workhouses were only sent to the worst, most dangerous jobs. And to give you a, a nasty example, they would take kids as young as four and put them into the chimney-sweeping apprenticeships simply because they were so small. Well, these kids would often die of cancer by the age of five or get stuck in these chimneys or fall and hurt themselves or die of lung disease at a very young age. This is what these workhouses can do.
0: God, Mary Poppins was a dark movie.
1: It, it's actually making light out of a lot of very dark things. Yeah. And they're in 1913, by the way. Jack doesn't end up getting into one of these professions. He apparently is a very bright student. He... uh He doesn't have to go through one of these apprenticeships. But even some of the better apprenticeships, like being a part of like being a shop clerk or something like that, it's all fine and dandy if the person you're apprenticing with, your master, the apprentice is more or less a slave and an indentured servant. Your master, if they're a kind person, your life is probably going to be very good. You'll work hard, but they'll pay you, they'll feed you, they'll house you, and then you'll have a life skill that you can move into and That system, that kind of informal patronage system works pretty well. But if your master is harsh and cruel and really just wants you there as someone to um, harass and beat, the life of that apprentice is going to be awful. So to further our charmed life of Jack Shepard, his mother manages to get him an apprenticeship with the man, Mr. Kneebone, that she is the uh, servant to. So he becomes basically a shop boy for him, an errand runner, the guy who sweeps the floors and just does all of his basic tasks while he's a teenager. And so for most of his teenage years, he gets to live with his mother being paid with a surrogate father in a time where that's really rare for people from the Spittlefield slums like Jack. Most people living in the slums lost one of their parents, most of their siblings, and did not live very long. These are the people who don't live past their twenties, but most people who have at least some means do. They live normal, long lives. When he becomes a late teenager at about 17, the typical informal relationships between the people who you know, have businesses and own property and have professions takes its, um, takes its normal path because Mr. Kneebone uses Jack as a bartering tool to get some work done. And here's how the deal goes down. It's it's interesting the way the world has always worked this way. Is Mr. Nebone has a country estate, an estate outside of the, the disgustingness of London, and he wants someone to build it. Well, instead of actually having to pay someone to build it, he apprentices Jack to that guy as a carpenter. Basically, by giving guaranteed work to this carpenter, the fee for that guaranteed work, and I believe he pays him too, was to have Jack as a part of the business deal to go become an uh, carpenter's apprentice with this man named Mr. Wood, which, by the way, is a perfect name for a carpenter.
0: Right. Well, I mean, all the names so far. Like, if, if you if you tell me that Kneebone and Jack isn't a Saturday morning cartoon, I'm going to call you a liar.
1: Yeah, I, I was always kind of giggling at Mr. Kneebone's name. It's Every of a... time.
0: Every single time. It's just fantastic. It's, it's 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 the it's the high point of a very dark story. <laughs> but also, t- to what we're actually talking about, like, Kneebone seems... Bizarrely nice for the for the time. I get there's some self interest in like making his like war like little like apprenticey dude uh, somebody who's got like a wider range of skills. But he is setting Jack up for a reasonable amount of success in his life by doing things like tying him to a a like a, a value add skill set kind of thing for his own work that kind of thing. Like it seems it seems like Jack's getting a pretty. I mean I get we keep we keep using the word charmed but. It does feel that way so far.
1: Well, it could be so much worse. And it's always, we always have to remember that there are kind and honest people and, and they're the majority in every time period in history. And we just don't usually talk about them because the people that come up in history are the criminals, the the politicians, the generals, and the those are the juicy stories. So the fact that we get this bi- biographical background to Jack Shepard's story is kind of a, it's a. It's a balancing act Yeah, to help color the rest of his life. The thing about Jack Shepard that we need to realize right now is everybody likes him. Right now, the reason why this deal went down so easily between Mr. Kneebone and Mr. Wood is Jack is charming. He's incredibly witty. He's pleasant. He is just one of those guys who you enjoy being around. And so Mr. Kneebone really likes him because he's just great little guy to have around. And as he gets older, he just seems to become this really pleasant young man. I'll give you an idea what Jack looks like is he was always very, very small. We're talking even for that time period. He's about five foot four, rail thin, but really sinewy. He's got these giant hands and these really big, almost like Disney princess eyes. Everyone describes him as having this very just like boyish and charming face. He spoke with a slight stutter. And he was incredibly strong for his tiny frame. So he's kind of like, he's very odd physical description of a person, but that's how he's described right. ad nauseum. I mean,
0: this this does reinforce my theory that he and Nebo are cartoon characters.
1: A little bit. He almost has that look to him. And you can see pictures in the books and find pictures on Wikipedia. And he does have an almost cartoonish-like face. And unfortunately, some of that's due to malnutrition. You get kids with that kind of boniness because <laughs> they didn't eat enough. Um, and those really big eyes, um, that's yeah, not uncommon. Yeah. I
0: mean, I shouldn't laugh at that, but it really does. It, it just kind of, like, rings so true that, like, these, like, really, like, cartoonish, adorable features are usually, like, indicative of something horribly wrong.
1: I mean, the famous actress Audrey Hepburn, for example, was only, she has such a thin frame because she had to live through the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. So she just simply didn't eat enough for four years of her teenage years. So she ended up being very petite it's that same thing did
0: not know that yeah as dark as crap
1: yeah that's just how the world is as a carpenter's apprentice jack becomes an absolutely expert carpenter woodworker but also a locksmith and understanding how latches work which at this time doors didn't have doorknobs they had latches which is different so he understood how to make things and break things, put things apart and take things apart. And he has these giant strong hands and strong arms from all of this work. And he is very good at using his skills at this point for good. And so he is not only a successful apprentice, he is Mr. Woods' like cherished apprentice because again, everybody likes him. He's this great guy and he's really good at his job. And a an apprenticeship usually goes about six or seven years. And the first four years of Jack's apprenticeship are perfect. He just consistently does his job well. He doesn't get into any real uh, conflict with anybody. But then we got a Saturday morning special about to start here. He falls in with the wrong people.
0: All it, all it takes is that one, that one cigarette.
1: In this case, it takes that one uh, shot of gin, but he goes to this, tavern called the black lion and that is not a wholesome place at this time in london gin as a drink was an epidemic and that's going to sound kind of odd gin you mean that distilled liquor from juniper berries yes that that is the the drink of choice that is like ruining society this is before other spirits have you ever had
0: gin Gin, gin ruins your mouth. Of course, it ruins society.
1: <laughs> um, but the thing that's going on with this drink is if you think about it, if the only thing you have to drink, your only intoxicant is beer, and it's a low percent beer, a three or four percent beer, you have to drink. Gin
0: is like gangbusters.
1: Gin is gangbusters. It's, it's multiplying the amount of alcohol by 10 times that a person is drinking, and that's pretty insane. And so I
0: I remember the first time I had an energy drink when I was a kid.
1: Same kind of, much worse idea.
0: Right. You like you're you're used to like juice and some soda and that kind of thing, and then all of a sudden somebody hands you like a Rockstar or like a Red Bull, and you have like three of them, and you're up until like four in the morning three days later because of it. (laughs) It's like that, but for people who have only ever had like light loggers.
1: It absolutely ravages society. It, It gets to the point where there's a movement in about 40, 50 years to like ban gin, get rid of this thing. Everybody should go back and drink beer. Um, they're, they're also drinking brandy in these places, but gin is really the big deal. And there's these gin sellers where someone just has their basement filled with gin, basically like bathtub gin and people just come in, spend money and get so drunk they pass out. And it's just these, these sellers of people walking on top of the the drunken people Um it gets, it gets really, really, really bad. It's like uh, about, we're about 20 years into the gin epidemic, if you want to call it that, as society is kind of even, crumbling even worse than it was before around this. And in these places like the Black Lion, that's the drink along with beer that flows. And these quickly become um, hotbeds of criminal activity. Uh, during the day, they're much more respectable, but by night... Everyone in there is either a criminal of some form or a prostitute. Jack meets a woman by the name of Elizabeth Lyon, who goes by her pseudonym, I any, guess. Any
0: relation to the actual bar?
1: No, different spelling of Lyon, spelled like L-Y-O-N. And she doesn't actually go by her real name. She goes by a, an odd name. She goes by Bess, which is a short name of Elizabeth. But she uses as her first name her town that she's from, Edgeworth. So she goes by Edgeworth Bess as a prostitute. Wait, hold
0: on. So you're telling me she could have been Lizzie Lyon, and she goes with Bess Edward? Edgewood?
1: Edgeworth Bess.
0: Edgeworth That is is a bad... That is the kind of bad choice you make when you drink gin. This podcast brought to you by Scotch.
1: The Black Lion becomes this haunt for Jack, and while there, he makes lots of friends, and he specifically makes this connection with Edgeworth Bess and he he yeah I agree he and Bess quickly develop um, a relationship the relationship is one of kind of mutual support oftentimes prostitutes benefited from having someone um, a man alongside them to help keep them safe Uh, we're not super sure exactly how the relationship starts but we know that quite quickly Best gets him into criminal activity. Uh, the,
0: the you're, in- you're spending a lot of time avoiding saying the word pimp when it sounds like he's a pimp.
1: He's not a pimp. That's what I was trying to avoid even leading toward. He's,
0: he's the guy who hangs out with a prostitute to keep her safe.
1: <laughs> she, she probably has one of those. Um, it's different um, because that's, that's what he isn't. Instead, what she connects him to is thieves. London at this point was filled with a huge variety of thieves to the point where there are just this expansive vocabulary for the different type of thief a person was because people would focus on being one type of thief. They would steal from one type of person or they would steal in one type of way. We've all heard of highwaymen. Well, those are people who uh, would hang out outside of the city of London and steal from carriages. Well, there were also what are called footpads, and footpads would um, were the scariest thieves in London. Is they were guys who would just mug you, um, but these were not like you know, give me your money or you know, no one gets hurt. They would attack first, steal second. I mean, these are the kind of footpads. These these footpads were terrifying because they would just pop up they out just of jump a, you They would just jump you and beat you and kill you. There was known footpads who killed every single person they stole from. that, that was just what they did.
0: Well, okay. So they're not—they're not a thief; they're a murderer who also takes things.
1: Yeah, thats thats what a footpad is. So there's different degrees of it, but these thieves and some of them are hanging out the Black Lion, are those those types of thieves? These are these kinds of criminals. But this is fairly normalized in London, because this is a city with six hundred thousand people, and there are estimates that upwards of one hundred and fifty thousand of those six hundred thousand people are active criminals.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know. I've been to Vacaville. (laughs) Jeez. (laughs) That's a joke for like 2% of our audience, but I don't care. I'm super happy with it.
1: (laughs) But think about just how many people that means are criminals. That's an insane number. The criminal underworld of London was something else. Um, there, this was in a time period, you know, when everybody still has powdered faces and fancy wigs. Um, it's where the term macaroni comes from because these rich people were so um, incredibly ostentatious with their wealth. And some of these extremely wealthy people would actually, like, join criminal gangs just for the fun of it behind the scenes. One such gang called the Mohawks was famous for basically um, attacking and raping women on a nightly basis just for because so to give you an idea of the kind of criminals that are in London it's that it's a terrible place and when a one quarter like one fifth to one quarter of the population is an active criminal everyone spends their days trying to avoid being mugged or attacked and just going out to dinner required armed guards this is a very unpleasant and unsafe place for anyone with any means And yet in the middle of all of this, you have this man who has had a rather positive upbringing and positive life, and he gets set into this because even the good pubs, like the Black Lion, had bad people there at night. What quickly ends up happening is it becomes difficult for Jack to avoid joining that criminal activity. For example, he is working on a brothel as an honest worker. He's actually just fixing the building. And he notices that there were some silver spoons just sitting out, ready for the taking. And he steals they were them. A metaphor. Any what?
0: I said they were a metaphor.
1: <laughs> no, no, he just straight up stole them.
0: Well, No, I know that, but they, but they were also a metaphor. Okay. Like it had to be silver spoons.
1: Oh, I get it. Okay. That is his first theft, and from then on out, he begins to try to steal as many things as he can and then of course sell them for money and to help, um, you know, kind of get him and best set up in some form of life together. And he spends it on, you know, staying out all night drinking. His life just takes that turn. Apparently it's really quick. It's within a couple of months that he goes from, you know, non blemished career to an active criminal. Well, he begins to quarrel with, um, his master and it gets to the point where in some of these fights, he actually ends up physically fighting with his master In he tries to throw stuff at him and ends up hitting his wife and all sorts of just contentiousness happens in his life because he begins to steal. Well, he has to break himself free from his apprenticeship. He actually ends it early because he is no longer seeing it as something he wants to do. He described later, um, and in the only interview we have of him, that he just was getting bored. He spent four years just simply repairing houses. He never got to build anything new. He never got to use his skills. He learned all of the skills he needed to be a legitimate carpenter. And according to him, to Jack, he never got to use those skills. He got bored. And the life of being a criminal when he's in his young early 20s just held more value to him, especially with how, how common it was. And just there's just these giant groups of people who that was their livelihood, and they usually did it alongside another job. So what Jack does is he becomes a journeyman carpenter. He just starts to work more or less on his own. Since he's so skilled at it, people happily take him up on his work, and for a couple of months, he basically steals out from under of all these people who he's at the same time fixing their houses. It's at this point that he's starting to get known as someone to be suspicious. He was protected in the first place because everyone liked him so much. Um, Another carpenter's apprentice uh, actually ratted on him on one of the first few times he stole something. And he was defended by Mr. Kneebone and and Mr. Wood. But he he avoided any sort of serious criminal record from that. So he leaves and becomes this journeyman carpenter. Well, instead of seeing that as the, well, that could have ended worse and I should probably stop as you'd hope someone did. No, of course not.
0: He instead decides, I'm invincible.
1: Exactly. And Uh, even worse, even worse, he comes in contact with his older brother and his older brother had been a professional criminal now for probably a decade. We have a... We don't know much about his older brother, Thomas, but Thomas had already had um, his cheek branded, which is one of the criminal uh, the uh, penalties for uh, theft. Um, you could also have your ear cut off. You could be sent to the colonies, or, which was equally as common, you could just be killed for it. You could be executed. Um, right. The criminal system in London at this time was arbitrary to say the least. Um, there was a very long list of felonies. And all of these felonies came with a death sentence. But it was, in the end, up to the judge or jury to decide just how much someone would uh, be penalized and how would they be charged for their crime. And to say that the the law code itself was very odd would be an understatement. So let's just kind of get an idea of the criminal system that Jack Shepard's about to drop into and that his brother had already gone through. So a quote here about the the law code. Numerous strange anomalies in the criminal code were suffered to remain without question. Attempted murder, for instance, was merely a misdemeanor. While to snatch a watch out of a man's hand and run away with it was a capital offense. To steal fruit from a basket was a felony, but to gather fruit and then steal it was a trespass. End quote. If people even stole as much as one shilling's worth of supplies, they could be sentenced to death. Now, in modern money, one shilling is the equivalent to about, I think it's about twenty bucks. There's twenty shillings to a pound, and a pound is about two hundred dollars in this time. So it's about ten bucks. So if you stole ten dollars worth of supplies, you could be put to death.
0: But if you try to kill somebody, it's like, don't do that again. Yeah. Oh, this is why. This is why the um, what were the what were the guys the in the city? Uh, we call ourselves thieves, but we're basically just murderers. Is this why they were killing everybody? Was because it was literally a lower sentence?
1: <laughs> in some ways, yes. Like, like in if some I, ways, no. If I, Think about if it this way: threaten, both crimes, to kill you, both crimes, are death sentences.
0: Right, but, but, threatening to kill somebody and stealing from them is a death sentence, whereas killing them. And stealing their stuff is the exact same penalty. So it's like, well, there's lower risk if nobody can snitch on me because they're dead.
1: Exactly. And that's the system that develops.
0: Uh, Amazing.
1: I mean, there's uh, over 100,000 criminals all with the same thing looming over their heads. If they are caught doing this, they are sentenced to death. And what's worse is that once someone has been charged or suspected of a felony... Bringing them in to the court system gets that the person who snitched on them 40 pounds. It's a lot of money. That's like $9,000 in modern money.
0: It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money when you got no money. It's, yeah, that's a lot of gin.
1: Pretty much, that's exactly how these people are thinking. What ends up happening is Thomas and Jack commit some crimes, but are very quickly apprehended. It doesn't take very long. Jack actually isn't caught, neither is Bess. um, And because she's helping, she's helping to find people to steal from, as well as a bunch of Bess's friends. Um, There's a lot more people behind the scenes. Um, These random friends will drop in, as you'll see, but the main people here are just Jack and Bess. But Thomas gets caught. And what Thomas does, as is still the case in most criminal systems, is he impeaches Jack. And the word impeach here means he basically rats him out. Thomas is captured, he wrath out his brother almost instantly. Now there is a price on Jack's head. The criminal justice system here, though, is even worse than it might seem because when you are able to legally provide evidence against somebody and then you get paid, there's not a lot of reason for people to do that honestly all the time. So a lot of what Thomas said was probably not true. He was probably deflecting blame off of himself but he was also committing crimes. So he was trying to get out of basically being executed. He was hoping that by doing this, they would just send him over to Virginia, which is a much better location than death. That's about the biggest compliment I'll give to Virginia. (laughs) I have nothing against Virginia, but that, that joke just landed right in
0: my feet. I'm, I'm also really mad at you for stealing that joke off from under me. I have one thing on this show. It's the jokes. You can't do that, especially not right now when we're doing this remote. Like That's the one thing keeping you from doing these yourself. <laughs> How dare you? How dare I? How dare you? I'm going to go get paid to rat you in for some like Very, very flimsily evidenced crimes.
1: The system is so corrupt that outside of the courthouse, there are these men who walk around with straw in their um, shirts and cuff, you know, like uh, the cuffs of their shirts and in their buttons, advertising that they are willing to give false testimony for money. And by the way, that's where the term straw man comes from. Oh, It's a false argument, it's setting up a false person because that's what they were doing in this system. So what happens to poor Jack? Well, there's now a price out on his head and he and Bess Lalo. They know, okay, we are now in danger of being caught and potentially being charged with a felony. And since it's their first time, they probably would have been branded or had their ear chopped off or their face nicked or sent to Virginia, something like that. Um, This is before they were sending criminals to Australia.
0: That list is so insane. They'll probably have, you know, like their face cut or their ear hacked off or they'll lose a finger or they'll have to go to Virginia.
1: <laughs> it's better than being drawn and quartered, which is what they did in the previous century.
0: <laughs> this is true, but still, it's just every time, every time you hear a list like that, I just hear that like, one of these things is not like the other.
1: <laughs> Unfortunately for Jack, he's an idiot, early 20 year old and he gets sick of waiting um and he decides that he needs to go he needs to go
0: play a game of skittles
1: now do you want to know what skittles is
0: i mean is he going to taste the rainbow this episode brought to you by scotch not skittles
1: <laughs> skittles is a form of lawn bowling wait really yeah
0: it's like uh it's like um bocce
1: uh yeah it, it's a game that I don't think a lot of people play anymore, but it, it's a basically it's a bocce so it's ball like lawn bocce. bowling game. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a bocce ball court literally half a mile from my house, so.
0: Oh, I have I have a full like bocce ball like, uh, like series of courts at a park near our house down here, uh, and they're always empty.
1: Oh, last time I was there, there was someone there, but I I I live in a weird spot, so. There you go. Anyway. How do we end up talking about bocce ball and skittles? Oh yes, he was trying to go because play lawn skittles. lawn
0: bowling, and I only know one lawn bowling thing that doesn't involve darts.
1: <laughs> skittles is a four-player game. It's basically two partners. Um, and Jack has a friend by the name of Blueskin Blake.
0: Gosh, amazing.
1: And Blueskin Blake, Blueskin is his street name. No. He is a footpad. So he is a mugger
0: no he's a murderer
1: Yes, <laughs> as far as i can tell blueskin is not a, of the murdering type but he is of the beat you as close to death as possible type so he's not a great guy and they are linking up with another guy by the name of helen fury sykes
0: H- helen or hell and
1: <laughs> hell and fury sykes
0: i'm not gonna lie would have been better if it was helen fury sykes <laughs>
1: I, I know, but Hell and Fury Sykes is like the dumbest street name I've ever heard.
0: I don't know. I don't know cuz I feel like Blueskin was pretty happy with his name then he met Helen Fury and he was like, "Wait, I could I could have done that?" Ah,
1: crap. That's like those old um, screen names which was like, you know, XX Dragon 136 firexxx yeah. It's it, it just ah, reminds me to, of that
0: to be 2007 again.
1: Yes. Well, Helen Fury Sykes was only getting Jack to play this game of Skittles because he wanted the 40-pound reward that was on Jack's head. And uh, in the process of Jack starting to play the game, getting a little too drunk and getting very focused on the game because apparently he was quite a Skittles player, Helen Fury Sykes grabs a local constable and apprehends him. And Jack is dragged to St. Giles' Roundhouse and imprisoned there for the day. Now, if you look up what a roundhouse is, is it's basically a small tower. It is a, it's like a turret that just is not attached to a castle. So a small turret with a conical top made of solid stone with maybe a window or two and a really big, strong, um, well-attached door. And it's a place to put criminals for the night before they are then taken into court and then arraigned and charged and all of that. And while he's in there... Jack goes, I think I'm not going to be in here all night. And he just endeavors to escape as quickly as possible. Well, they didn't do a very good job of cleaning out his pockets or anything because he has a razor on him, and there is a chair inside of the roundhouse. It's basically just a chair, a mattress on the floor, and then they just kind of chuck you in there for the night. It's like a, a holding cell, like a drunk tank. Right. Um, and think about how... He's being charged for a crime that he'll be put to death to potentially. There's no reason for him to want to stay in this situation. So what he does is he rips apart the chair. And the the chair, you can think of it as there's the, the part you sit on, but then there's like, it's called the stretcher on the back. And that's one solid piece. So he rips the part you sit off of from the back part of the chair and he attaches his razor to the top and he basically stands as high as he can in the room. He piles a bunch of stuff up and he starts to scrape away the mortar of the, the different brick tiles on the ceiling. And he, um, ties together his, his bed, uh, blankets together.
0: This is a lot less violent than I was expecting him to be with a pike.
1: Yeah. He basically invents a pike and he, over the course of the night, scrapes the mortar away and gets up high and starts to remove the tiles. Is not a very big room, mind you. So he's not having to like climb super high, but he starts to slowly remove the tiles one by one, but he has to do it very carefully and very slowly. There's a guy sitting outside listening for him. There's people walking around. It's nighttime, but people were able to walk around at nighttime at this point. And eventually, though, he lets go and he loses one of the tiles and it starts to just make a huge commotion, fall to the ground, and instantly a crowd starts to appear. And so he just As quick as he can, he just starts to chuck the tiles. Go, 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 go. go. He gets up, he jumps down, and he actually kind of, he bounds away through a graveyard as people are starting to start to look for him. Well, as uh, crowds start to gather on the other side of this graveyard, he actually jumps into the shadows and then joins the crowd, and then he points up at the top of the roundhouse and at some of the houses nearby and goes... There he is, the devil behind the chimney stack. And he points at some shadows. <laughs> and then when everyone starts to look in that direction, he walks away.
0: I've seen this movie.
1: And it's it's great because that's his first escape. And it's that kind of thing that it, you're going to be like, man, this is something out of a movie. This is a guy who just is that's just such a bold thing to do. I'm not just going to sit here and get charged for this crime. I'm just going to get out. And he's able to put together the the implement to do it. Well, what does he do when he gets free? He doesn't see the error of his ways. No, he starts to walk around London and he steals wristwatches off of people's hands in crowds with a friend. And he is quite quickly caught again, this time while committing some crimes with Bess as well. They actually both get caught and they are sent to a different roundhouse.
0: This episode brought to you by doing crimes. Yes. And it's just, you know, when, when
1: you read the books, it tells you all the specific crimes and everything he steals. It doesn't matter. He's, he steals stuff and he gets sent into prison because what he steals isn't super important right now. It's, it's small things. It's wristwatches. It's, um... Long yards of cloth, it's 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 silver spoons, it's small trinkets that he can then go sell. Right. Well, when he gets thrown into this roundhouse, Bess visits him, and there's a lot of weird rules. Like, you can get visited as a criminal, even though you're probably going to be sentenced to death, and even if there are rules prohibiting it, um, you can always just bribe the guard. So Bess probably just bribes the guard, and she brings him a full-on, like, halberd, you know, that, like, axe bike combo but just the top of it so it's not like the full weapon it's just the top she knows that he can use that to get himself out of this roundhouse which he he does he starts to get himself out but then he gets caught on the way out by the the beetle the person who runs the roundhouse is called a beetle by the beetle's wife well when he's caught and Bess is basically blame for giving him the supplies. They actually both get arrested together and they get chucked into what's called the new prison as husband and wife they get thrown into the same cell in the new prison as husband and wife.
0: Okay. This would be a good movie.
1: That's that's what I was thinking as I was reading about it or like a, you know, a Netflix original series, like a a 10 parter.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's that's what it actually is. It's just going to end up being like a six-hour. It's going to be like uh, the Irishman, but it's going to be the future Virginian.
1: <laughs> now, some of their friends bring them some escape tools. Um, they actually do it twice. And eventually, Bess and Jack are basically locked in the cellar of this new prison, um, locked into this, like, extra uh difficult to get out of cell um it's not down below it's actually up high a little bit
0: these sound more like escape rooms than they do prison cells at
1: this point yeah but think about it these are
0: you I know every room is an escape room if, with, within a force of will
1: that's true these are just solid stone walls with small windows with bars on the windows um there's guards outside walking around um you know these are not easily escapable places you know the fact that he was able to get out of that roundhouse so quickly and efficiently is very odd we don't have a lot of stories of people escaping from these these things that's just not common so down in this prison cell they both know that again they're going to go to see a judge within a day or two and they have to get out well some friends bribe their way in and deliver them some carpentry tools and he's an expert carpenter and one? Uh,
0: uh, how? How in the world? Who is running this place? Like, like bribing to go see somebody is one thing. Bribing to bring somebody carpentry tools when they are already a known prison escapee. Who? Where's the quality control here?
1: Okay, this is where this ep- I get to this, explain. This
0: episode. This episode is brought to you by going to Virginia and committing crimes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is where I get to tell you how the prisons worked in 1720s London.
0: Perfect. Let's do it.
1: There are two prisons. They're at the new prison, which is the newer one because the English can't name things. I mean, there's cities called Newcastle. Come on, guys. That's
0: true. That is that's a good point. I was you said that they don't know how to name things, and I was gonna start like ratcheting off all the ridiculous English like names like that people have, but you are correct. At a certain point, they just started throwing the new in front of things.
1: <laughs> Says the country with New York, New Orleans, etc.
0: And someday. And at this rate, someday soon, new New York.
1: Oh, gosh. Futurama's coming true.
0: Oh, wouldn't that be great? I mean, not for us, but, like, for the future.
1: <laughs> so there's these two prisons. There's New Prison and then there's New Gate Prison. Um, and I'll talk mostly about New Gate Prison, the one that has been around the longer time. Um, it's, it had been around since the medieval period and probably even longer. We don't know actually when it was originally founded. But the way this prison worked is it had a variety of different wards. And once you were put into the prison, you could just walk around free because it was surrounded in giant walls and all that. And what would happen was once a person was thrown into prison, they were immediately expected to pay for every single thing in the prison, simply having their handcuffs taken off. Or their fetters, the chains around their legs, depending on what kind of criminal they were, that cost a certain amount of pence or shillings. We're talking t- 10, 20, 50 bucks simply to have your chains removed so you could walk around more freely. To have a bed took a certain amount of money. To be fed food that wasn't bread and water cost a certain amount of money. If a person was wealthy enough, they could pay for a nice, comfy room in this prison. Everything cost money inside the prison the people who ran it the jailers were the ones you paid and that's how they made their money they weren't paid a salary they were given this payment to treat you not terribly so they were as encouraged as possible to treat people poorly so that they could get more money and there was not a single thing in the prison that didn't cost some form of money and we're not talking small fees it could cost thousands of dollars to not just have this terrible existence sleeping among the straw, which was more filled with fleas and rats than humans. There was no sanitation. There was absolutely no light. It was basically this dim glow at every season. It was stifling hot in the summer and freezing in the winter.
0: Right. Yeah. No, I've been, I've been to Vacaville (laughs) callback jokes plus, but yeah, also, also this, I mean, you know, rats and Actual pestilence aside, this doesn't sound super far off from basically how the American prison system works, too.
1: There's, It's different, though, because there's these masses of people in crowds just milling about. Right, right. And there's pregnant women in the system who are sent in there because they're prostitutes, and they give birth to their children and are just forced to abandon them in the middle. So there's, like, death all around. There's no toilets, so there's just filth everywhere. There's something called jail fever, spelled G-A-O-L, which is pronounced jail, apparently, where people get these just ridiculous forms of typhus and typhoid because they're living in this filth. A huge portion of people simply die in prison before they even go to trial, and yet if you have enough money, it's like a hotel for you because You can just bribe everybody,
0: right, so that's what they're doing or trying to do well,
1: they got someone to bring in new supplies to them so they can get out because the situation they're in is so terrible. What he gets what Jack gets because he doesn't want to be in this prison, he wants to get out as soon as possible is he gets a um a file, a metal file, and he gets a what's called a gimlet, and a gimlet's an old tool that bores holes it's like an old Isn't screw it
0: also a gin drink a a what? Isn't it also a gin drink? A gimlet? Yeah. It might be. I think so.
1: It's like a rounded screw that you can use to bore holes into wood. And he uses these two tools to start to remove the bars and the wooden beams across the window of their room. Because he sees that's really their only way out. He can't get through the door. It's being guarded. What he needs to do is he needs to file down... Metal bars, and then he needs to find a way to remove these solid wooden beams that are blocking the window so that they can get out. So he goes about and does that. And what he ends up actually, instead of removing the beam, he just finds where it connects to the wall and he just screws into that so many times that he's able to break it with his arms. And now there's a big opening in the window, and they wait till nighttime. And they actually have Bess take off all of her many, many, many petticoats. I mean, this is a time period where women wore like six layers of coats and she's in her, just her, like her nightgown. And the one thing we need to know about Bess is that every single person in every single book describes her as extremely fat, corpulent for the time, which means she's probably just a slightly curvy looking woman. But for the time (laughs) when everybody else was so incredibly skinny and scrawny, she's known as fat. Because it's right, right, right. when you read the time, they they describe her as like beautiful, but right, right, right. I think it's been this, translated. This is, so it's, she, she's just a era. little bit bigger. She weighs more than Jack, though. We all know that because he's like 120 okay. pounds. But they look down from that opening in the window, and it's 25 feet down. They're on the third floor, so that's why they have to make a full-on rope out of her dress, and then.
0: So they tie all the petticoats together.
1: Exactly. This is like, you know, again, something from a movie.
0: Converting a bunch of petticoats into one mega coat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jack has to lower her down. First, so he gets her up through the window, he lowers her down. He basically is using himself like, you know, he sticks his legs into the wall and he slowly lowers her down cuz apparently she weighs a lot more than him and takes a lot of strength, but he's so strong as this little guy, he's able to do it and then he scales down himself.
0: She's so difficult with her lack of malnutrition.
1: I know, right? And they end up in the courtyard of the prison. And they still have to get out of the courtyard without being caught. Well, The problem is now there's a giant 20-foot wall in front of them with a giant 20-foot gate with iron studs and iron bars sticking up out of the top. Well, they cross the courtyard, and Jack tries to climb the gate, and he finds he can only get about four or five feet up before the the giant metal bolts that hold the gate to the the wall don't get him high enough. So he actually invents rock climbing. He uses his gimlet, (laughs) and because it's a wooden gate, he prize these small footholds it's like said, it's a little screw it's not very wide but he basically screws it in enough time so he makes his little footholds and handholds as he's climbing and just like a rock climber grabbing those little tiny bits he uses his strong fingers and he climbs to the top of the gate he uses the spike at the top of the gate to wrap um the the rope that they have made from a the mega coat the mega coat and he then has to while on top of a wooden gate, trying not to be seen, trying not to make noise after having just lowered her down and climbed up, he now has to basically turn himself into a human pulley so that she can get pulled up past him and then lowered down safely after him. He attaches the petticoats to the top of the spike on the gate and lowers himself down. And they escape again. They re- retire to some tavern probably have a very fun night together and And have a gimlet (laughs) have a gimlet by the way
0: i I looked it up it's gin and lime juice
1: okay that makes sense
0: yeah there you go gimlet it's on brand (laughs) this episode brought to you by scotch
1: jack and his friend blueskin blake begin to run the most lucrative robberies of their career Jack has now escaped from prison twice, and he's starting to make a bit of a name for himself in the criminal underworld. Uh, We do know that he has some followers and admirers at this point, though they don't really have much of a name yet. Um, We know that he is at least spoken of already in, you know, the, the criminal underworld a bit, as well as just the normal everyday people for this guy who he just escaped from prison with his wife in this almost romantic escape. And he is not a dangerous criminal. He just steals things, which, for the time, started to make him a bit of a folk hero. He steals the love of his wife.
0: Has he murdered anybody yet, or no?
1: No, he hasn't harmed anyone. Okay. He has only stolen things. He's just a thief.
0: So he's like Robin Hood, but he steals from the everybody and gives to himself, but he doesn't kill anybody.
1: So not Robin Hood at all. All right. These next robberies are far, far more lucrative. And this is where it starts to get a bit frustrating and sad because he robs Mr. Kneebone. And he doesn't rob Mr. Kneebone of a small amount of money. He robs him of 500 pounds worth of goods. When you translate 500 pounds worth of goods, you just need to multiply 500 by 200. That's a really, really big number.
0: That is a lot. Also, this is a major, like narrative threshold right here like the fact that he's now stealing from like his like former mentor so to speak this is this is this is the episode what is it? the episode two of the star wars prequels
1: yeah yeah the, it's like the beginning of the downfall
0: right exactly this is the yeah like i said this is the threshold where he goes from doing crimes and still kind of like sometimes being almost a a uh a carpenter to now, like, I'm just going to steal from the man who tried to give me an honest life.
1: And this is where it, the downfall does truly begin. Because after trying to approach Jack's mother and Jack's mother trying to get involved a little bit, uh, what I'm, and what Mr. Kneebone ends up doing is he approaches a very interesting man by the name of Jonathan Wilde. Jonathan Wilde was the ruler of the underworld.
0: He's he, he's He's Hades?
1: I guess you could call him that, and he's interesting. I'm just going to give you a brief background of who this guy is, why, and why he's important. Jonathan Wilde was probably the first true mob boss. He was building on all sorts of different ways that criminal gangs worked beforehand, but what he brought into just the basic organized crime was legitimacy and the aspect that organized crime could function within the realm of law and order, what Jonathan Wilde did is he acted originally as a middleman between thieves and the people who they would sell goods to. So think about what situation Jack has. So he's fencing. Yes, he is fencing. The problem that Jack had when he was stealing his goods is he had to go through someone who was a fencer, someone who could sell those goods for him. Well, because the act of fencing was a felony and would get you killed, the fencers basically took 90% of the money. So thieves would have to continually steal
0: to make any amount of money because the fences are taking so much of the profit.
1: Exactly. So that that is the concept that was the problem for these thieves. So Jonathan Wilde shows up and He decides that he needs to just organize it so that the thieves can make more money, but he knows where all the supplies are. Okay, So let's just take a little bit of a step back into who Jonathan Wilde is. Because this is the guy that Jack Shepard runs into because Jack Shepard is unwilling to be a part of Jonathan Wilde's organization because Jack Shepard is an independent guy. He just doesn't want to be a part of a big organization like this. So Wilde's background is actually fairly similar to Jack's. He grows up in a similar-sized family with a similar amount of mortality around it, except he's in a place called Wolverhampton, which is a slightly bigger city outside of London. He actually starts a family as a buckle maker, and then he gets bored with that and just up and leaves his family. And he goes into London to try to make it big. He strikes out. Goes into debtor's prison. He goes to Newgate prison. And in the process of being in Newgate's prison he, with no money, mind you. So he's at the, just the worst of the worst. He basically is able to make money by linking up with a prostitute named Mary Milliner. She helps him to start to run out jobs and get criminal connections. He's basically they,
0: parallel universe Jack.
1: Exactly. It's, it's so similar.
0: What, is his name John? John Wilde?
1: Jonathan Wilde.
0: Jonathan Wilde. So they're both Johns, but one goes by Jack. Yeah. And one, and that, okay, that's, that's eerie.
1: It is eerie because he goes to prison early and he gets all these criminal connections and when he and his um, now wife um, slash mistress, it's all common law so it doesn't really have that formality. When they finally get out, she opens a, a brothel and he starts to act as a fencer. Well, he decides that why don't I start a gang? He has all these connections with all these people. It's also a tavern during the day, so some, you know, it's not just a brothel. And so he's got this clientele around him.
0: It also has. Gin.
1: He's got this clientele around him, and he gathers them together and says, "All right, guys, if you always tell me what you've stolen and where it is, I can make sure you get a good profit for it, because what I'm going to do." is I'm going to return it to its owners.
0: Interesting.
1: So during this time, people would have this thing stolen from them and they would put an ad in the the local newspapers, which were just the beginning. I mean, this is like the first decade or so of real newspapers. And there's also pamphlets which are more like blog posts that people would write, print, and then just pass out. And so inside all of these, it's kind of like a it's very internet like People would ask for stuff back. I just had, you know, all my candlesticks stolen. I think it's probably this guy. If you know anything about this guy who stole my candlesticks, apprehend him. You get a reward. I will pay with, um, a small uh, reward for getting my candlesticks back, and I get my stuff back. Well, Wild had a thieves steal things, and then he would either approach people with some intermediary or have that person come approach him to get those supplies back. Well, he started this out saying he just knew people who ran warehouses, who kept finding stolen goods as they moved you know, through these different warehouses, and he was able to get some people their stuff back. Quite quickly, he starts to have his thieves steal things so that he can then get certain people to come to him. Well, when these people come to him to get their stuff back and Wilde's able to give them their stuff back for a decent price, those people are happy because they get their thing back, which is what they wanted. Wilde takes a cut and he gives a cut to the thief. Well, the thief is safe. Wilde isn't going to betray him. The thief gets a better cut than he would if he went through a different fencer. Wilde gets his money and he begins to set up this legitimate business of getting people's stolen stuff back. The person whose stuff was stolen just basically treats this theft as um, a tax on living in a dangerous society. And if, as long as Wilde is able to get people's stuff back, who cares? Everyone's happy in this situation and kind of treats it almost like a thief tax. Wilde sets up this organization and begins to expand it with two basic features that make him successful. One, he himself is honest. Not that he is a great guy, but what I mean is that he is going to keep to his word. If he tells you he's going to do something or he's going to pay you, he's going to do that, period. And he was trustworthy because of that. And secondly, he keeps track of everything. He had binder upon binder of people who had stolen things and where the goods were, who had them when they had gotten them, who had wanted them back. Was this just normal goods or was this something more like um, a pocketbook with all the mistresses mm-hmm. of somebody? You know, was this something that could be used for blackmail or was this something that could just be used to get money back? When Mr. Kneebone approaches Mr. Wilde, that's what Mr. Kneebone is saying. He's like, well, these are the things that were stolen from me. I'm pretty sure it was Jack Shepard and Blueskin Blake. Can you get them back for me? And so what Jonathan Wilde does is he picks up a guy by the name of William Field, who had some involvement in the, the crimes, and he hires William Field to be a straw man against Jack Shepard and Blueskin Blake. Because the other part of Jonathan Wilde's job was any time that there was somebody who had double-crossed him or could potentially make him money by being captured, he would send in his thugs to pick up that person, and then they would all split the 40-pound reward. So since Jonathan Wilde is someone that you can work for, and as long as you do what he asks, you will get a good cut, he gets a ton of power by being very aggressive at anyone who is undercutting him. Well, Jack Shepard had refused to work with him already, so Jonathan Wilde wanted to remove Jack Shepard. Seeing an opportunity to make a small sum of money, he goes after him. And at the same time, he benefits from getting Mr. Kneebone's materials back. So this puts Jack Shepard at the target of a very, very powerful criminal mastermind. Simply because Jonathan Wilde wanted a thief who isn't going to join his gang removed, and he gets to make money for it. Jonathan Wilde had become so famous that he became known as the Thief Taker General because he set up an entire organization that was legitimate, that Parliament had to pass a law saying what he was doing, because they knew what he was doing, what he was doing was illegal. So he had to basically separate himself from his own business and run it through intermediaries. He becomes this massive criminal organization with him as the helm. And the second that a person under his control committed a crime, Wilde would put his name down in a binder and put a cross next to the guy's name. And then if that person, who now had a crime over his head that Wilde could bring him into court and get him sentenced to death for, the second that that person committed a, a like a slight against Wilde, he would put a second cross next to their name. The person is now ah, double-crossed. There it that's, is. That's there where that phrase is. comes from.
0: Wow. Okay. So this guy is the originator of the double cross.
1: Yep, that's this guy that that Jack Shepard has gotten on the wrong side of. Wild sends his men to try to find Shepard. Well, Shepard and Blake run out of town once they realize that they are in Wild's um, crosshairs, and they actually work as highwaymen for, highway for a while. They work as highwaymen for a while. And they're trying to rob carriages, but they're very bad at it, apparently. It's just not their style. They're good at breaking and entering and stealing things. Which is funny with this one thing that Wilde realized that all the different thieves, he actually produced different um, like, regiments of thieves. There was the footpads group. There was the people who stole from warehouses. There was the people who stole from brothels. There was the people who were highwaymen. And Wild realized that his thieves were good at one type of thieving. Well, Blueskin and Jack aren't good at highwaymen, and they basically are starving to death because they can't make any money doing it. So they're forced to return back to London, and Wilde's men are still looking for them. Well, one of the first things that Wilde does is he corners Bess, and he threatens her and gets her drunk, and she betrays where Jack is. Unfortunate for Jack is... they, <laughs> The guy who comes to see him and to capture him uh, is a professional... Bounty hunter, basically, and Jack actually shoots his pistol at the guy trying to kill him. The pistol misfires and Jack is apprehended. As is Blueskin Blake, by the way, and they're both dragged in front of the court system. Uh, Jonathan Wilde and William Field produce all sorts of evidence that doesn't actually make sense. In fact, the evidence and the crimes that Blueskin Blake and Jack Shepard commit on record are completely different. Hmm. Basically, even though they did all the same things, yeah. The, the the trials are clearly fraudulent. They are criminals, but you know fraudulent crimes. You can kind of see the, the, the straw man, the perjury that was committed to get them in there. They're both sent to Newgate Prison, the really bad prison, and they are condemned to death. This is where Jack Shepard goes from common criminal to something else. Because in Newgate Prison, he learns that he is condemned to death about a week before his the date of his hanging. He's going to be hung on 4th of September, and he learns about that date on, like, August 29th. So he has, like, a week left to get out of prison. He's already escaped from prison twice. The guards quickly learn that he has this ability, but he still is somehow managed to be given escaping tools.
0: Seriously? Again? Yes. Oh, my God. Amazing.
1: It's, It's ridiculous because they're actually trying to keep him in better they put him in the the condemned hold which is a cell with all of the condemned prisoners so he's with other prisoners at least at first a guy who was expecting a reprieve um, actually gives him a couple of the extra supplies after that guy who was expecting to hopefully be pardoned doesn't get pardoned and he gets sent off to be executed well that guy had himself had supplies smuggled into him and so now jack shepherd gets his little supplies and he takes a file and begins to file down um, the spikes at the top of the, the basically where the the wall connects to the ceiling. There's like these spikes along the top as a form of window. So it, it's kind of like the, it, it's 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 a weird picture. The way it's described is a little different than the picture you see because this was all drawn out. And, you know, in the newspapers. Well, on the other side of this partition is the word they generally use, which has these spikes. And it's a very narrow gap between the spikes. There's a passageway into the prison and then there's a spot on the other side of a little L shape in the wall where the guards all sit and drink and relax during their shifts. So he is right next to where the guards hang out with a tiny wall blocking his um, little partition from the guards. And then it's a major walkway out to the the prison grounds, So he's like at the center of all of the activity.
0: So even if he breaks out of this, he's not breaking out of the prison. He's breaking into the rest of the prison.
1: Yeah, he's breaking into the busiest part of the prison. He takes the file and he begins to file, 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 file at the spike that is, you know, at the top of the partition. Bess and another one of her friends with the disgusting name of Paul (laughs) Maggot.
0: There's so many good names in this story. Like you have Jack Shepard, action hero. You have you have John Jonathan Wilde. You have Blueface or whatever. Blue skin. Helen Highwater Jackson or whatever the other one was. <laughs> and then you've got Paul Maggot.
1: Yeah, and doesn't it's he like,
0: know that you can literally call yourself whatever you want?
1: It's it's bad. What, what these two ladies do is they sit outside of his window, which is totally allowed. Everybody was able to do this, and they chat with him. And he's going to be executed in like five days. And they're just chatting wildly as he's filing away at this spike. He had been filing away the whole day before. He had to wait this, this Sunday because it was too active. And then on the next Monday, he's filing away. And they're sitting there chatting with him. He finally breaks free. And it's a nine-inch square gap that he is having to fit through. That is a very <laughs> small gap. And yeah, that's not great. what they do is they send him in women's clothes. So they gave him an entire dress and bonnet 40, and all that.
0: 42 petticoats.
1: Yes. He, he gets his own mega coat.
0: Ah, the mega coats.
1: He puts those on and then he jumps up, manages to get his head and more importantly, his shoulders out of the bars and jumps down. And then Bess and he simply walk out. Paul Maggot waits for about an hour, and then she walks out too. But there had been enough people walking in and out that the guards just saw two women leave, because two women had come to visit, Right. that he can literally just walk out. They have to kind of shield him a little bit. But not as
0: much as you would think.
1: They just basically, when Bess walked away, she walked at such an angle that you couldn't see his face. Once they leave the grounds, there's a carriage waiting for him with one of his admirers. This is amazing. And that guy by the name of Paige basically just get into the carriage and leave London to get away <laughs> and lie low.
0: <laughs> I mean, like, if this was a story, you'd be getting notes right now from your from your like script editor going, look, you can't just have him continuously breaking out of prisons over and over again. The audience is going to get bored. And it also seems unfeasible. And yet here we are, this dude keeps getting locked up and he keeps just filing his way out.
1: And it's like, at a certain point, you need to check the guy and stop letting people visit him.
0: Yeah, and stop letting them visit him with tools. Like
1: the top of a halberd, for example. Yeah. Like,
0: how do you smuggle hey, that in? Yeah, hey, is it cool if I deliver uh, a portion of a weapon to a guy?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, it's fine. The, uh, the prison guards at this point are... F- just totally panicking because this guy keeps escaping. He's now escaped from prison three times. He's escaped from the most secure hold in the prison. And they are not exactly happy about it.
0: As as they shouldn't be.
1: No. And Jack knows he needs to stay out of London for as long as possible. So he and his friend, Paige, who's a young um, guy with no criminal history, but is apparently probably in his late teens and about to be the next Jack Shepard in terms of the, his entry into the criminal life. So he and his new friend, um, They go out to the countryside, and they actually stay with Paige's elderly um, aunt and uncle, um, but they feel bad because they are um, basically overstaying their welcome with these these poor people, and they're like, no, we're we're not going to do that. I mean, it's funny because they're thieves, but they also don't want to, like, abuse their families. They're not, like, bad people like that. They're just thieves, and that's part of his charm.
0: They still haven't killed anybody, so.
1: That's exactly it. That's why he's so popular. He doesn't harm people. He just doesn't. It's not his temper. Well, he's not, they, he's, not
0: he's not a dick. He's just going to take your stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean it was the way he chose to live with yeah. all the consequences. When they return from the countryside Jack is a known person and he is also well and wildly wanted. You know, wild wants him. They all the constables of Newgate <laughs> prison want. Wildly
0: him. wanted.
1: That that was not intended but I I rolled with it. But it was good. When he first gets back into London, a guy recognizes him. I mean, there was pamphlets passed around describing his, the way he looked, his boyish features, his big eyes, his frame, um, the way he spoke. He had a slight stutter. I mean, a lot was published about him and his deeds. Right. So he's his folk hero, and a, a milkman comes up to him and goes, you're Jack Shepard. And he goes, uh, yeah, I am. Can we please keep that on the down low? By the time he gets like a couple of blocks over, people are like actively coming up to him and trying to talk with him. And he's trying to like just sit there and have a drink and be as inconspicuous as possible. And people are like trying to come up and shaking his hand. And he's like, if you guys don't leave me alone, I'm gonna get caught and executed. Leave me alone. And he gets right. so angry about this. He actually returns to that original milkman and completely trashes his shop. Just chucks all of the milk bottles and jugs around. And you can see that he does have a little bit of a temper.
0: Right. As 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 celebrities often do.
1: Exactly. Trying to find a way to make some money because they're desperately poor and starving, uh, Jack and Paige start to steal some watches. Um, but in the process, as they're running away, um, the constables start to chase them. And by the way, these constables are not like true police officers like we're thinking. In many cases, these guys were just as corrupt as everybody else. They would, you know pick you up and beat you up and say, pay me money or I'm going to throw you in jail, even if you didn't do anything. These were horribly corrupt constables at this point. But they were also trying to pick up guys like Jack. And so they end up actually capturing Paige, thinking it's Jack. Paige, in the, the commotion, gets away and Jack gets away. And they both run and hide into a common. And Jonathan Wilde and the Newgate prison guards organize an entire manhood manhunt to basically just walk through this wooded common area. Because at this point, London, though it is a dense urban city, there's a bunch of big open green areas all throughout and around the city. And they're just basically hiding in a barn in one of these green areas, which still has farming in it. And so this giant mass of constables and wild thugs and prison guards start to comb the area, and they eventually do capture Jack. And they bring him back to Newgate again. And this... And this is how Hibbert in his Road to Tyburn book describes Jack's trip back to Newgate. It was gala night at Newgate. Bumper after bumper was drunk to celebrate the recapture of the famous criminal. A sing-song began with the te deum and ended with ribald ballads. The first sightseers were admitted into the hold to see the Chained Shepherd at a cost of three and six pence, about 40 bucks a head. At the height of the festivities when almost the entire staff of the prison and many of the prisoners were incapably drunk, news was delightedly received that the hated Jonathan Wilde had followed a false sense sent as far as Stourbridge, very far away. At least one prisoner literally laughed himself sick. At this point, Jonathan Wilde is becoming less and less popular because when he is the one that people learn is, are, is capturing Jack Shepard, and he was uh. the one informing on him, that starts to turn the public tide against him because everyone loves Jack Shepard. And they start to see Jonathan Wilde as this man as running the criminal underworld. And in fact, right around the same time, during the uh, trial for Blueskin Blake, Jonathan Wilde shows up to that trial and he's going to present evidence against Blueskin Blake. Blueskin takes out a razor and slits Wilde's throat. What? For the same for the, the exact same situation that Je- Shepard and Blake were sent to prison because of what Wilde did to Blake. Blake, while having a conversation with Wilde, Wild basically makes a remark of, eh, I hope you die quickly. And Blake slits his throat. Well, Wilde had been prepared and had a bunch of surgeons basically hovering around him just in case someone tried to beat him up. This wasn't the first time someone tried to kill him. <laughs> and he survives the cut, but he is basically uh, incapacitated for a lot of the time after this. So most of what's happening next leads to the complete fall of Jonathan Wilde. And I wish I had time to describe him more because of what he did to Jack Shepard and Blueskin Blake. It's fascinating.
0: Wow. Wow. I mean, I have so many notes about that last, like, two minutes of narrative. (laughs) Everything from, like, it's fascinating to see that, like, this, like, folk hero, anti-establishment thief is, like, the crucial piece of turning the tide against this like criminal overlord, but also, and I feel like at a certain point I need to stop having to ask this question during this story. But where are these people getting all of these weapons when they're supposed to be prisoners? Corruption. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like, holy crap! If everyone's corrupted on the payroll and everything, shouldn't Wild be in a position where like people are more beholden to keeping him from getting? throat slit than a dude who's in prison is able to like get a weapon to do some throat slitting against him.
1: I think some of it is the the fact that you can always, if, if you're the one who gets the person and brings them back in, you make money. I think that really plays a part in, well, who cares if they escape? I just made uh, a bunch of money. Yeah. They escaped. They're just going to get caught again and brought back in. Heck, I might be able to me, help I can
0: make more money. Yeah.
1: And if they get back in, cool. I get to make more money.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. I fair, fair. Deeply corrupt. Oh yeah, for sure. And it takes, that is amazing that he gets his throat slit over over this situation. And it takes
1: like a hundred years for this to start improving. I mean, this is the case for the entire 18th century. Everyone's drunk. Everyone's committing crimes. It's incredibly dangerous. It's bizarre.
0: Once again, I've been to Vacaville. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so here's where the story takes its crescendo. It, it really starts to
0: reach a point of, really? Wow. So. Okay, so Jack's back in prison, again.
1: Jack is back in prison. Quality. And they put him in a place called The Castle. This is high up in the prison, and it's the most secure place they can possibly put him. In fact, it's in an area of the prison that's actually surrounded in a bunch of unused rooms because of awful things that had happened in just that's not where they use put people anymore. So it's kind of an eerie, ultra secure area. Jack is no longer um, permitted free movement, and they put him in heavy irons, and they padlock him to the floor.
0: They are not messing around this time. They
1: have you know chains around his legs. The chain connecting them is padlocked by a horse padlock. So this is like a massive padlock, and there's a staple in the floor that they can attach him to. He is visited by everybody that is willing to pay. So rich and famous people flock in to talk to Jack Shepard. Apparently he is just charming and witty and fun to talk to and he entertains all these people and just really furthers his celebrity status. And I mean, these are like dukes and earls and governors are coming to see him as well as just normal poor people, anyone who can afford it. And of course, of course, even though he's being watched daily, they managed to smuggle him some basic supplies.
0: Uh, you, nobody can see that because it's an audio podcast, and even now we don't film. But uh, I just did like a celebratory, wacky waving uh, inflatable arm tube man thing because you knew it was coming. You knew, you knew that he's like padlocked to the ground. All this means is he's going full Houdini on this one.
1: So while waiting in that cell, he at night or during those times where the guards don't visit him because the guards have a schedule. He unlocks his padlocks with the, and all of the chains and he basically walks around and just scopes the room out freely. And then he will put them back on when it's time for the guards to come back. Of course. Well, he does get caught doing that, unfortunately. And he just simply shrugs and says, "'Twas troublesome," when they catch him. Just unrepentant. <laughs> it, I don't want these on my legs. so I'm gonna take them off if I can.
0: Right. You're, you're, you're going to kill me anyways. Why do I care?
1: So here's where they staple him to the floor. So they put on heavier irons with a bigger padlock, and then they loop that, those irons through a staple on the floor, and then they you know, ratchet that down on the floor, and then they also put on a giant pair of handcuffs. So he is now handcuffed and fettered and stapled to the floor. Quote, And so for the next week, Jack languished in acute discomfort in his cell, sometimes lifting himself up to sit in a chair, more often lying down on his back on the stone floor. The visitors who still flocked in scores to notice him with pity, notice with pity the raw scars round his wrists where the iron of the handcuffs had cut his skin and gave him money for which he had no use and which he immediately sent away to other prisoners who were able to buy themselves some degree of comfort with it. That is how you become even more popular.
0: Folk hero.
1: Exactly. So now... Jack is being watched so closely that the guards are not taking bribes because their personal pride is being affected and everyone's kept at a distance from him, so you can't pass him things. And there's someone watching him pretty much 24-7. Jack gets lucky and it's in October and that's when the old Bailey sessions begin to ramp up. The old Bailey is the courthouse and that's when there's, just for some reason, there's a lot more activity um, at this time of the year. And the guards can't watch him to the same degree. And finally, somebody, we're not sure sure who, drops a single stout nail close enough that Jack can can get it. (laughs) Jack picks up the nail and actually puts it into the buttons that are on the back of his shirt. So he buttons the shirts on the back. So they're behind him, like at the small of his back. And that's where he holds that. So they're like... Frisking him and checking his pockets for supplies and they don't catch that he has this single nail this is a big thick nail but it's a single nail and he knows that his time to get out of this prison needs to needs to happen soon and in the room he notices that there while he had been walking around in this relatively large room um with his chains off earlier there is a chimney in the room and he is not on the top floor there's a floor above him And he's been taken to the floor above many times to be um, given a sermon in the chapel. Anyone who's condemned to death who's given sermons in this chapel that's on the floor above him, I believe the fourth floor, he knows that from the chapel, there's a door that leads through a couple of passageways out onto the roof. And if he can get up there, he can probably find his way out of the prison across the rooftops. But he has to get himself through the chimney without being caught. So what he ends up doing... Is he waits for night to fall, he more or less tricks his guard to not really be paying attention that night. I think he doesn't bribe him. He just is like super nice to him. And the guy lowers his guard. And then using his rusty nail, he manages to pick the padlock, pops off the padlock, and then takes the chain and he inspects the chain. And this is right as Dusk is setting. So he's trying to get this done while he can still see. And he finds that the chain that is holding his fetters together has one link that is weak. And he takes that and using the padlock as kind of a leverage point, he rubs the chain back and forth across the padlock and eventually that weak link snaps and the chain breaks apart and he takes it off. And he uses that to break the staple away. And so using a... Chain and the padlock and the rusty nail, he now has these three supplies with his hands still in handcuffs and the, the fetters, the chains still around his legs to try to climb up this chimney into the room above. And he knows from discussions with other people that the room above is empty. It's called the Red Room. And it was an old prison used for um, religious prisoners like 30 years previously and had been empty since. When he goes and looks up the chimney, there's a solid iron bar across the chimney. This is not a wide space, but it's small enough for him to get out. And he decides that the only way for him to get out is to simply take the chimney apart. And in like true Minecraft style, take it apart and then pile up the stones underneath them and climb up to the next level.
0: Solid minecrafting right there.
1: He can't get the iron bar out himself, but what he does have is he's got that nail, he's got the the chain link, and he uses that to scrape the mortar away from between the different bricks, and he just simply scrapes them away and then removes them one by one. And he literally piles the chimney down underneath them, climbs up out of it, using the padlock and the nail and the chain, he hammers his way into the next room. When he enters that room, Everything is completely pitch black because this room has no light. There are no windows. That's part of the reason they don't have people up there anymore as they felt that was too cruel, having no light in there. So he's in this room. He has no idea what's in there. It's pitch black, and so he has to stumble around, grabbing the walls, reaching for anything. He finally finds the door, and he has to, in the dark, with a rusty nail and a broken chain link, pick the lock. He actually manages to get through that door by pretty much removing the apparatus, the latch, that holds the door closed. Opens the door and enters out into a hallway. In that hallway, he notices right next door is the chapel that he had been into many times before. He absolutely hates the chaplain, by the way. The chaplain was a guy who was only trying to get Jack to give him basic gossip about his life because what the chaplain did was the chaplain wrote pamphlets that were basically like tabloids about all the different Mm. people that were condemned to death. And so the chaplain was just not even giving him real sermons, was just trying to get details about his life. And Jack just found this guy to be tedious. And so he absolutely hated him. Great. (laughs) Just a little aside there. Well, Jack now needs to get through the bolted door into the chapel. So then he can then go through the chapel through the bolted door on the other side. Well, he can't get into the chapel so instead because the the door is too well bolted he thinks well if i can just make a hole in the wall i can just open it from the inside because it's unlocked from the inside i know it's unlocked from the inside i've been in there enough times so he takes the padlock he takes the nail and he hammers a hole next to the latch in the chapel door and he at this point he just has to hope no one catches him Right. And he's making a ton of noise at this stage and he just does it as quickly as possible. Somehow no one hears him or no one recognizes that it's someone trying to break free from the prison. He unlatches that door from the inside by putting his hand through a hole in the wall and opening it, gets through the chapel, easily picks a lock on the next door and enters this passageway. And in this passageway is a much larger, stouter and well-locked door. And it's this door, the fourth door that, he has his hardest job because he can't just unlock it. He can't pick this one's lock. It's well, it's basically too good of a lock. Cause this is the, the door that kind of separates the inside from the outside of the prison. It's a much more important door. Instead, he <laughs> sees that the door is, um, it's like a fillet door, meaning it's got a little overhang on the top. And on that little overhang is a solid iron panel with a bunch of iron bolts in it. And what he ends up doing is he takes his supplies and he, with his incredible strength, mind you, he has chains on his legs and handcuffs on his hands. He rips off the f- door frame, which That's- is a si- solid iron door frame. Throws that down because the the lock is attached to that. And he basically pried it off over time, got it loose and then just starts to rip it off. And once he gets enough leverage on it, he can take away what, the door frame connects to and what the lock connects to. And when he pulls that away, he can then pull open the like 80 pound door and walks out. The last door is easy. He just simply picks the lock, knocks the door down and he's out in this big courtyard. He's outside. He's gone through six doors. He's he's picked locks. He's broken the doors. He's broken holes in walls. He's ripped the side fastening that solid iron away. And now he's quite tired and he's standing on this courtyard.
0: In the in the prison still.
1: He's in on the roof of the prison on a rooftop courtyard. Wow. And then he realizes with absolute depression that he he can't climb the wall. It's it's a you know fifteen foot wall in all directions. This was a place where they would put people to kind of like exercise outside. So he has to go back into the prison and he has to pick up two new supplies. In the chapel there were various spikes So he has to pick up a spike because he's going to then go back all the way down into a cell and pick up his blankets and make another blanket rope. But he has to do all that as quietly as possible going, please, please, no one come and find me.
0: With chains on.
1: With chains on. Imagine he's not a quiet walker. Right. It might be this. This might be where that whole like the ghost wearing the chains thing. (laughs) That little.
0: Oh, yeah, I could see that.
1: You hear chains walking down the hallway as quietly as possible.
0: The ghost of Jack.
1: He grabs his blanket, grabs the spike. Again, with the handcuffs and the fetters, he loops himself up, climbs the top of the courtyard and jumps down onto the, um, the, the roof tops that connect to the prison, which just connect to normal houses. And he dives into someone's attic. He's trying to get out of their attic when he starts to make some noise. And he hears a woman go, what's that? Upstairs. She's downstairs and what's that upstairs and he's he freezes right and then a muffled voice of a man next to her goes "Eh, it's just a cat and they go to sleep and he decides to just wait it out that night and rest until the daytime because he's done this entire escape over about five hours in the course of the night five six seven hours to get to that big door was about five hours And in the morning he basically just waits until he thinks the time is right and sprints out of these people's house as well as he can. He ties his chains up into his stockings so they're invisible. He covers his you know his hands as well as he can, and he just walks through London as nonchalantly as possible.
0: As a celebrity.
1: He as a celebrity, but he's he's so filthy and disgusting looking that he can't be recognized for spending the time oh, in the yeah, prison. He's
0: just been like locked up in a cell chained to the ground.
1: News spreads immediately. By the next morning, he is extremely famous, and what he decides to do is leave London again, temporarily. Um, he is starving, he does have some money on him, it seems, but not a lot. And he, outside of London, he manages to find somebody who is, uh, he, he basically goes and passes out in a barn again, in because um, he's exhausted. And he tricks a guy to get him a hammer, because he still has his tools, but he needs a hammer, he's gonna break free from the handcuffs. He tricks a guy by lying that he was chained and sent to prison because he was unwilling to pay for a bastard son. And the guy who had lied to had had that exact same thing happen to him, where he had sired an illegitimate child. And if you were unwilling to pay for it, you could get sent to prison. Well, this guy, it's, it's interesting how quick Jack was able to think because that gave him the most mild form of why he would be chained up and so that he doesn't just immediately get caught and thrown back in jail again and the guy who he was talking to who finds him at this barn was like, oh yeah that's happened to me too, I know what that's like and so he gives him a hammer and so Jack gets himself free it's just luck after luck, little things like that people keep providing him the materials he needs to get out of these situations and just the endemic crime to allow that argument to work is just impressive to me
0: oh absolutely, that's a gosh this is, this, okay, this is the most impressive prison break I've ever heard of.
1: Well, he spends the next 10 days as a beggar. He just wanders around and everywhere he goes, though he is unrecognized and he's making little bits of money and kind of going from place to place, all people do is talk about him. Everyone thinks he is the most amazing person. He has one-upped Jonathan Wilde. He's escaped from prison. He's this handsome, boyish-looking guy who has saved his wife from certain death, and he thumbs his nose at authority. He doesn't harm anybody. He doesn't hurt you. He's just a rogue. That perfect archetype for a folk hero. Unfortunately for Jack...
0: I hate to hear it.
1: He is impetuous, and he, after 10 days, gets tired of being a beggar. He wants to be famous. He wants to, according to him, spend the next week, or maybe it's like the next five days, some short amount of time being famous, enjoying his fame, and then he's going to leave the country. He goes and robs a clothing store of some of the nicest clothes he can find. He actually threatens the two guys in the back that if they come out, he'll kill them robs the store out from under them and then dresses himself up as a countryman, uh, country gentleman, and then just goes on a drunken rampage. He sells his, um, some of those extra clothes for as much money as he can. He, he hooks up with a couple of his old, um, mistresses, basically. Um, Bess is by the way, in prison for being a prostitute. So, um, and she had betrayed him. So there's some discussion as to whether they had a falling out, um, but she's gone and now he's basically with two women and he is just going from tavern to tavern to tavern, just as drunk as humanly possible, enjoying his celebrity, partying it up with his newfound menage a trois. And within like three days, he is he's seen by someone who recognizes him and wants some of the money for capturing him, which is now a much larger number than even 40 pounds. That guy goes and grabs a constable and they easily apprehend him
0: right of course because he's drunk and fancy
1: he's he he apparently is like laughing and singing as they put him in the carriage to bring him into the into the prison again this time when they put him in prison he is still visited he is still widely renowned they have him chained flat on his back to the floor
0: of course they do because yeah why wouldn't you at this point
1: he is basically unable to move, though apparently still very pleasant and fun to talk to. He is guarded 24-7. <laughs> they do manage to smuggle in a sharp pen knife. So he does have a knife on him this entire time. Oh, my God. And uh, this is when Daniel Defoe, the newspaper man, who also is a very interesting story, but we don't have time for that. Um, he visits him, and we get the full interview of Jack Shepard's life, including how Jack escaped all of these prisons and the nice thing about this story is we can tell that almost certainly it's all true because just the way it's always been presented and there's physical evidence of all of these escapes all of those doors were destroyed in the exact way that jack said he had the you know he had the supply still the the nail and the the chain that he used to get out so we know that he did these things and we get a full account written like within a week that's written as an autobiography by Daniel Defoe, most likely, about Jack Shepard. So there's a written in 1720s English, so it's pain, a pain to read. Like every, every noun is capitalized. It's really annoying. But you have a full account. It, it's it, interesting to read because it does tell the exact same story we told. Just a little bit more of a you know dandy flavor to it. Now Jack actually, he's in danger. Um, he is sentenced to death. Um, and he's going to very soon go on the Tyburn Parade. And the Tyburn Parade is to a place called Tyburn. So remember, Christopher Hibbert's book is called The Road to Tyburn because at Tyburn, which is a small, um, it's now a section of you know, metropolitan London, but then it was a small village with a little tavern house. There was what was called the Triple Tree. It was basically a triangular gallows where people were hung. And it was the place of execution for London at that time. And when someone was sent to execution, as by the way, Blueskin Blake was sent about a week before this, so Blueskin Blake has been executed. At this point, um, they would be taken on a cart, and depending on the level of importance or fame of the criminal, the they would be um, treated to a parade. Now, every prisoner on execution day basically produced. Uh, a holiday people got the day off when there were executions happening so the entire city would just get drunk and follow the parade of people being executed and if the person was unpopular for doing something like something that people just didn't like and sometimes murder could be popular but stealing a candlestick could be unpopular and other days it would be completely backwards it just depended on the the person
0: yeah it's just it's twitter
1: <laughs> kind of yeah They could be harassed and stuff thrown at them and, you know, accosted the entire (laughs) time. Or they could be treated to libations the entire way and they would be, you know, having a drunk party by the time they got to the gallows to be hung. Well, Jack Shepard is really famous. So when he is condemned to death, they put him in the cart. It's a big deal. Over half of London is out to see him and everyone's partying and having a great time. He's chatting with people along the way, seeming all comfortable and calm because he fully expects he's going to get out of this. He still has his knife, but right at the beginning, one of the constables checks him and cuts himself badly and they take the knife from him. So now, And Jack says, well, I'm being sent to my execution. You don't need to actually put me in handcuffs. They say, no, you're being put in handcuffs. And they put him in handcuffs. The other hope they had is that if he is hung, um, this isn't uh, the time where a, the rope breaks your neck. Most people strangled to death until basically the the, the strength of their neck muscles and things gave out. Yeah. And so the hope was that Jack could, with his strength, keep himself conscious enough so he wasn't dead yet. And once he so was, once he down. stopped moving, they would take him down and then they would revive him later. So he has a bunch of people hovering around him waiting for that. A hopeful eventuality and there are many stories of people being revived and if you were revived from a hanging you were um not hung again what yeah right
0: seriously yeah that's amazing
1: i think you had to pay something but
0: what what an insane and ironic loophole well
1: it's it's one of those like well i guess god didn't want that
0: amazing that is all, all those little
1: things is what's in this story which is this is such an ahistorical I mean, by story. That, it's this by, that logic,
0: by that logic, shouldn't he be, like, acquitted because of all of his various jailbreakings?
1: A little bit. It's not a crime to um, escape from jail in a lot of countries, even nowadays.
0: Yeah. But but I'm just saying, like, if if, if, if they hang you and you don't die, and they go, well, we're not going to rehang you. I feel like if we jail you and you break out, we're not going to re-jail you. You clearly, God didn't want you there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, he broke out four times. So. The crowd actually gets so impatient because they want to watch him. Hang because it, it's a long voyage around uh, as he t- takes his basically his victory lap to the gallows. Um, but unfortunately this is where the story ends. He is tied up with a noose, he is given his last words and his last sermon. He apparently dies badly, meaning when they, you know, release him to drop. He spends about 20 minutes ch- choking and kicking. And when he finally stops moving and they cut him down as quickly as possible, uh, when his friends had tried to grab him to bring him to surgeons to revive him, the crowd uh, flipped out at them thinking that they were trying to steal him to take souvenirs of his body, which were mm-hmm. particularly hated criminals. You'd cut them up and take their ear and take their fingers and stuff away. They, The crowd jumped on his friends, and in the following um, mayhem that occurred, it's likely that that is where he was killed, because he was still breathing when they took him off, and then he is trampled to death in that violence.
0: Oh, that took a dark turn.
1: And that's the story of Jack Shepard.
0: It was so fun for a while there.
1: He has his autobiography written. There's a play produced immediately about him. There was then a novel written about him um, in the 1800s that takes the basic outline of the story and really tweaks it romanticizes it the main characters being jonathan wilde and jack shepherd and he has changed over time so i think the popular imagination of him until um he became a historical figure was that he was this almost silly and stupid rogue but in reality he was just criminal that was really, really good at breaking locks. Um, about a year later, Jonathan Wilde actually, uh, because of this whole Jack Shepard thing, went, with his popularity lost and some of his backing lost, uh, he gets sent to prison. He tries to run his enterprise from in prison, but it just doesn't work, and eventually because he did commit a ton of different crimes, he is charged with a felony. He is um, sent to death as well. He's uh, He takes a lot of laudanum, trying to commit suicide from overdosing and he basically is um so out of it that he is easily executed so jonathan wild is executed within a year of this as well and it's so interesting to me that this just roguish independent thief is able to take down jonathan wild a criminal i really wish i could dive into his career more and how he ran things but you get enough of it to see that history can be filled with all these different little tiny events these in, in incredibly unimportant people like jack shepard can become this great story and begin an entire genre of writing because when defoe publishes his true crime autobiography it's it becomes the most popular form of literature available for people because there's so many criminals and their 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 life Around their criminal history, the fall from grace and the redemption and the ultimate execution becomes this trope that we still see today, not just on podcasts, but in, you know, O.J. Simpson writing his story about his true crime. Biographies that st- get started from this become more and more popular because of criminals publishing their stories. This is where, in this incredibly cruel, still fairly medieval time, you start to see the first establishments of a modern media and a modern press, which it's through these that the eventual reform of the Newgate prison happens, the eventual recognition that just executing people for the simple crime of stealing a candlestick isn't solving crimes. It's just making there to be more criminals because they have nothing left to lose. It's the beginnings of what Jack Shepard's relatively benevolent criminal career and his popularity, because he was so charming and kind and witty and good looking and other pretty much nonviolent that you see the eventual reform of the system that he was a victim of and an active participant in. And plus it's just a fascinating story of a criminal.
0: That it is. That is a, that is a solid, solid seven prison breaks.
1: Yeah, he goes to prison five times and escapes four times.
0: I was being facetious, but holy crap, that was very close. <laughs> you love to see like the cockiness at the end there, too. All the way up to the gallows, he's like, oh, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I got this. You took my knife? That's fine. You don't have to handcuff me. Oh, you're handcuffing me anyways. That's fine, too.
1: He was sitting, chilling, drinking with people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, up until up until the moment that he drops, it's like, it sounds like that's where things really set in.
1: Yeah, apparently he got um, Al gallows. He gets very pensive and his calm charm vanishes in the last like 10 minutes. And he's like, oh, I'm going to die now. Yeah. You know, that feeling of invincibleness. Finally,
0: that if the, 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 the facade finally slips a little bit.
1: Yeah. And even then, he probably still would have survived it if he wasn't <laughs> massacred by the crowd.
0: Yeah yeah no kidding Jeez.
1: so we're not starting any sort of new series in the 1720s or anything um this is a, a one-off episode but i hope everybody enjoyed it it was certainly fun to read um i will be posting we will be posting uh, the two main stories one is on jonathan wild and a little bit on jack shepard um By Aaron Skirbel called The Thief Taker Hangings. And then I quoted uh, The Road to to Tyburn by Christopher Hibbert a little bit. These are pretty easy reads, by the way. um, And they're both pretty inexpensive books. So if you have any interest in the criminal underground of London, uh, there's a lot more there and more description than could fit into a podcast episode. Um, It's a really interesting look at a time in history that you've probably never heard of. So I'd highly recommend um, those quick reads.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Footnotes. To check out those resources that Kevin uh, just talked about, you can click the links in the description of this episode to purchase those or to read the autobiography, uh, which is a free read online. If you want to interact with us a little bit more, you can follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, the various social channels. All of those links are in the bio as well. If you like the show, I would really recommend that you just like send it to like one person. If you've got somebody in your life who you think would enjoy the show, who you think would get a kick out of this story or any of the stories we've done, Uh, It would really help us out if you would just, you know, send that on over to somebody. Like I said, we're doing this during um, the coronavirus lockdown stuff that has taken the country. So um, hopefully none of my jokes were in poor taste by the time this comes out. Fingers crossed, you guys. Uh, Until next time, take care.